Chelsea Fairless. And welcome to another episode of the Every Outfit Podcast. And I know we like to talk about how dark and harrowing things are, but it is quite literally dark outside because the sun sets at 4 p.m. now, even in sunny Los Angeles. It fucking sucks. It's such a buzzkill. Like, I drove over here on Mulholland at Golden Hour. It was one of those, like, amazing head-clearing drives. I was living for it. And now I'm here and it's fucking pitch black. Like, what happened? Daylight savings, baby. I hate it. Again, can you run for office just so that can be part of your platform? Abolishing daylight savings. Look, if Democrats really want to win, and when I run for office, my platform is going to be, we're all two years younger because we get two years back because of the pandemic. And I'm abolishing daylight savings time. And you're putting laws in place so there's not those vans on Mulholland anymore. Yeah, that's a real specific to Los Angeles thing, but yeah. Oh, speaking of which, I love that we recently and separately traumatized our friends with how we drive on Mulholland. How did you? I thought Tat was the one that traumatized Jake. Tat was the one that traumatized Jake, but I was in the car and complicit in the situation. You traumatized Maya with your driving. Yes, which was, I was driving the speed limit, but I was taking the curves as if I knew how to drive Mulholland because I do. And our friend Maya went, Lauren, don't, please don't. (laughs) And I went, oh, okay. I feel like I know that road like the back of my hand, but you must really, having lived off of it for 30 years. Could I do it blindfolded? Yes. Should we do that as a challenge for the Patreon? Maybe. <laughs> you decide. Um, what else is new? I haven't seen you in a minute. I know. It's my mom's birthday on Monday, so I took her on your recommendation to the Joan Didion I almost said experience. That's how <laughs> that's how brain broken I am. Uh, the Joan Didion exhibit retrospective at the Hammer Museum. I also took my mom to that. It's the perfect intergenerational activity because Joan Didion is something that boomers and millennials can both agree on, which is charming. The closest thing that I had experienced to this before was they did a retrospective on Stanley Kubrick's career and they had a lot of ephemera, which they have a lot of Joan Didion ephemera, but it's also curated by Hilton Alls and it also includes art pieces that kind of go with Joan's work as well. Yeah, because she's not a visual artist. So throughout this exhibit, they have a lot of artworks from other artists that are basically visualizing her writing. But yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird show. It's a weird mix of stuff because there's that. That. Then there's actual ephemera, like the the posters for Star is Born and Panic in Needle Park and like her manuscripts and stuff. Then there's like artwork of her and artwork that's kind of inspired by her, like some of the Jack Pearson stuff. Yeah. Did you realize that because this exhibit opened a little under a year after her death, but it was in the work since 2019? Hmm. It's a good show. I would definitely recommend it to anyone that lives in LA. Also, the Hammer Museum is free and you can also see the terrifying bust of Armand Hammer. This is the problem. It's a great exhibit at a fabulous museum, unfortunately with the namesake and funded by a truly terrible man, Armand Hammer. 
Which, Chelsea, did you know that Army Hammer is an honorary director of the museum? Oh, I did it. You think he had input in this Joan Didion exhibit? I doubt it. Well, the main chick at the Hammer is a dyke, so that's cool. For those of you that live in Los Angeles or are cinephiles who are coming here to visit, they have a fabulous movie theater as well that the UCLA Film and Television Archive does the programming. I should go there. It's like not far from my house. I know, we should go see something sometime. Yeah, I'm into it. Also this week, 10,000 people DM'd us the auction of Joan Didion's possessions that's happening soon. Which again, some of that stuff is in the exhibit. Like the... Yeah. Some of the portraits of her are in the exhibit and they're up for auction. And people kept DMing us being like, uh, are you going to bid? And I looked at the auction. So the auction officially begins on November 16th, but you can bid on some of the items. And uh, let's just say this estate sale is a little rich for my blood. <laughs> a set of her blank journals right now is $1,100. Her Celine faux tortoiseshell sunglasses already has 13 bids and it's up to 3500 Worth it. Well, we're also five days away from the actual auction. I know. You know, we'll follow up and let you guys know how much those tortoiseshell Celine sunglasses sold for. Because that's the hot item, in my estimation. I think 10000 At least. I also want her Richard Sarah. And she has like a really fabulous set of porcelain plates with fishes on them that I'm into. That is not going for much. So that (laughs) might actually be yours. Love it. Have you ever bid on celebrity memorabilia? No. Friend of the show and who did the bad news theme, Lauren Kramer, is very fluent in this. In the language of Julian's auctions? Absolutely. No, I tried to bid on the Robert Evans auction because the suggested prices for things, I was like, oh, that's kind of reasonable. And I just want something dumb, like maybe his a matchbook or something. And then I was in, this was at the height of the pandemic. So it was, it was an online auction and everything went for like $10,000. Oh yeah. I think, did we talk about this on the pod before? I can't tell anymore. No. Yeah. It's hard to tell. I don't know. Did we talk about this? So if we did, sorry guys. It's, It's becoming increasingly difficult to tell where we end and the podcast begins. Yeah. And what conversations we've had privately and what ones we've had on the podcast, it's fucked. But the only Julian's auction that I participated in, which was... An auction of Joan Collins clothing, and I did bid on her turbans, which I lost. Do you remember how much it went for? Over $1,000. It was a collection of like, it's like the cheapest turbans you can buy. It's like you could actually buy them on Amazon like right now, but they were owned by her, so. Well, now that the weather has dipped and I got these pants tailored, it's time to break out my estate sale Chanel pants. Great. Which are now a business write-off because I've talked about it multiple (laughs) times on the podcast. So thank you guys for that. Wait, you can't do that. Surely that's illegal. We'll find out. (laughs) I'm doing this. I'm zooming in to this podcast from prison for white collar crime. I love it. I'll visit you. I'll put my hand against the glass. What? You won't show me your boobs? Selfish. I mean, do you want to see them? I'll show you them right now. Oh my God, they're great. (laughs) Thanks, honey. Speaking of uncomfortable privilege, should we get into White Lotus season two? Sure. We're two episodes in. How do we feel? 
I feel like we really need to, and by we, I mean streaming and cable channels need to implement a weekly binge hybrid format where they are dropping episodes every Sunday, but it's like two. Because for White Lotus, look, some shows you need to digest week by week, like a Big Little Lies. But I feel like for this, I'm not getting a lot in these first two episodes. I wish when the show premiered, it had been these first two episodes. Oh, really? I'm obsessed with them. I watched them twice. I did this with the first White Lotus. I watched every single episode twice the week that it came out. And I'm doing that again. It's funny. The first criticism that I saw for the White Lotus was by a sort of internet acquaintance who's a critic. And it was was them talking about how they hated this season I said oh no and then I read the fine print where they were like but I didn't like the first season either it's like oh okay I think it's great I want as many white lotuses as humanly possible yeah I think I took I cut this out of our Patreon episode for Titanic but I did pitch Mike White just setting the white lotus on the white line cruise Titanic oh yeah yeah why couldn't we go back in time the possibilities are endless could you imagine Jennifer Coolidge playing someone (laughs) the unsinkable Molly Brown I can't imagine that actually, and it's fabulous. I think the cast is great. Obviously, I continue to love Jennifer Coolidge. She's just trying to live her best Monica Vitti life. You are Peppa the Pig? <laughs> I am. You cannot tell me that that woman who runs the front desk and is the manager of the hotel isn't fucking me, Chelsea. <laughs> Is that not Sicilian me? Yeah, I was going to say that, but I thought it would be rude. But I like that you just broke the tension. Well, I am half Sicilian, so I feel it. (laughs) I feel it in my blood. No, I think this season's cast is better than the first season. I don't know if it's better, but I think it's great. I think Mike White is so good at satirizing the 1%, but also like retaining their humanity. Like the whole plot line with the dad, the son the grandfather the holy spirit that is the realest shit i've ever seen yes and what mike white can do with what is unsaid you completely understand that michael imperiolo's character has cheated on his wife you know his wife and his daughter are pissed off at him f murray abraham has that grandpa greatest generation like i don't understand why i can't call you sugar tits energy so real I love how it is a show that's I think everyone's straight right this season but you can tell it's written by a fabulous gay man especially in that scene where Michael Imperioli's ex-wife calls him yes that is fucking genius it's so good it's so over the top it just it sparks joy also Michael Imperioli is hot Uh, yes isn't he he's been hot since the Sopranos but yeah I think he's even hotter now. As a silver fox, yes. Absolutely. Well, going back to is anyone gay, we don't know what the tension is between the Theo James character and the other guy that's married to Aubrey Plaza. Right. There's something going on. It's very clear that Theo James's character wants to fuck Aubrey Plaza to get one over on his former Harvard or Princeton roommate who sold a tech company for a shit ton of money. Yeah. I love Aubrey Plaza on this also. 
She is said because she knows Mike White and he wrote this role for her and he wrote it to be more in line with her actual personality because obviously Aubrey Plaza has played a certain type of character and I think a lot of people have derived what her personality must be from the character she's played. Right. You know what her character reminds me of, actually? Sarah Jessica Parker in The Family Stone. Yes. Minus the shit about not wanting to have a gay child and the throat clearing. Again, we've got many episodes to go, so... Back to Jennifer Coolidge. Her description of her perfect day touched me so deeply. She's like, I just want to ride on a Vespa. I want to go out to dinner. We're really chic and we're happy and we're eating vongole with giant clams. It's like, yes, yes, that's how I feel. That's what I want. I am on her side because she did spend a good part of season one in the back half explaining to her now husband, played by the actor John Grease, who I love, one of my favorite character actors. She explained to him that she's a fucking hot mess and he was like, I don't care. And now he does care. Yeah, but he's also taking advantage of her, kind of. The only thing that gives me pause is at the end of this latest episode, Jennifer Coolidge catches him on the phone to someone he says that he loves and he explains to her he has to leave for a business trip, but obviously that doesn't seem to be the truth. I'm hoping he's not having an affair and it's something more interesting like he and his daughter are plotting to steal Jennifer Coolidge's money or something. Yeah. I trust Mike White to give us something that we're not expecting, although... That's such a high bar. Because who would have thought that season one of White Lotus would end with Murray Barrett shitting in someone's luggage and then getting stabbed to death a minute later? <laughs> like, how do you top that? We'll see. Who do you think is dead? Well, is it, the, is it Theo James's wife who's talking to the two tourists in the beginning? Or is that just a different sandy blonde woman? I couldn't... No, it's that chick. Okay. So she's not dead. That much we know. But we don't see her husband, Aubrey Plaza, or... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Michael Imperiolo is not really going down a great path as he's fucking young Sicilian sugar babies instead of bonding with his family. Yeah, but he seems like a reasonably decent guy. (laughs) Suddenly, wow, his performance has turned you into like a 20-year-old Tumblr girl from 2014. You're like, I can fix him. You're like, he's he's daddy. <laughs> also, that scene where he faced off with you, the front desk lady, <laughs> was perfect. We also haven't spoken about the other version of me as someone in a past life who worked for an eccentric celebrity who they had to travel around with. I'm also, I'm somehow... Oh, yeah, you are. You are, yeah. I am somehow the... <laughs> pushy manager and the pushed over assistant to Jennifer Coolidge who has to hide. Yeah, she's great. That's really it. And that's why I'm saying I feel like if every Sunday we had two hours of White Lotus, I feel like I would just enjoy the experience a little bit more. Well, yeah, same. That would be incredible. (laughs) But I like the fact that there's one show that I get to watch as it airs. It makes me feel like I'm watching Sex and the City on Sunday nights back in the day. And, you know, that's the one thing that HBO is known for. Event Sunday evening television. Thank God for HBO Max. While we still have her. Until it becomes Disney Plus Max. Discovery. Magnolia Network. I hope not. You were quite taken with a New York Post article about the... (laughs) (laughs) The resurgence of heroin chic. Yes. This week, an article was published with the very inflammatory title, 
Bye Bye Booty, Heroin Chic is back, which received immediate backlash. Which, as a thin person with a booty, I take offense to this headline on both fronts. (laughs) You know, this is really unfair. Some of us are just naturally thin. We're not all heroin addicts. Remember how earlier this year the Post published that article that we talked about called Dressing Like a Lesbian is the Hottest New Trend? Right. But then the article itself isn't that offensive. Like, they've done it again. This is the new version of that. Well, it really does feel like an article that was written by AI, where they were like, what will get us the most clicks? And how do we reuse these photos of Khloe Kardashian and Bella Hadid that we already bought? Yeah. But the thing that's really annoying about it is that none of these visual examples that they use to support the fact that heroin chic is back have anything to do with heroin chic. Like heroin chic and thinness are not interchangeable terms. I feel like heroin chic, heroin chic is a very specific thing that mostly refers to, I would say, a style of photography more so than a body type or a style. I will say embedded in the article is a photo of the model and now actress Jamie King, who is actually the definition of heroin chic. Oh, yeah, that was heroin chic because she was dating Nan Golden and Nan Golden took all of those photos of her. And Nan Golden is kind of the blueprint for heroin chic. And, you know, spoiler alert, actually did heroin. And same with Jamie King. She was a model who was a heroin addict at the time. That's true. But I think that it's not like these models were shooting up in the photos, right? Like this wasn't like Larry Clark's Tulsa. Right. It also felt like a lazy term just for being thin because my my memory is that it was used for Kate Moss, who was never a heroin addict from what? I understand. Also, my one annoyance with this article is, well, my one, I have multiple annoyances, but being thin never went out of style. Like in the photo montage is Bella Hadid at the Caperni show. And Bella went from being thin to being even thinner. Like even the first quote curvy trend that came after the heroin chic phase of the 90s was that, you know, Brazilian model Adriana Lima, Giselle Bunchen, and then you had J-Lo. But it's like, those are thin people too. Yeah, and you forget that heroin chic was a reaction to the unattainable physiques of supermodels. It was a reaction to the tallness, the tanness, the boobs, the ass. Kate Moss is, what, 5'7"? Five, six, five, seven, yeah. Kate Moss is short. Kate Moss has kind of fucked up teeth. Kate Moss was very pale. Kate Moss, I guess Kate Moss has average sized boobs, but heroin chic kind of did challenge traditional beauty standards in that it did glamorize people that didn't have big tits, which was cool. And also like it was, heroin chic was like a rejection of artifice. You actually saw people's skin their scars it presented a more naturalistic look because it ushered a more naturalistic look into fashion photography at the time that was very influential and not to sound like Meryl Streep in Devil Wears Prada but it did trickle down through the industry in a way that was significant and important it's such an inflammatory word and it gets people's attention like it's I remember I mean I remember Bill Clinton talking about it it kind of was like the critical race theory of the (laughs) 90s I know like what an annoying square 
unfair because the reality of the situation is is that heroin chic got roped into the war on drugs yes and became this kind of buzzword for something that wasn't even real because like i said heroin chic was very specific it was the photography of kareem day and davide sorrente and, and mario sorrenti and people that were very influenced by fine art photographers like Nan Golden, like Larry Clark. And then that kind of imagery migrated from the pages of alternative British fashion magazines to advertising to brands like Calvin Klein and then trickled down to the gap. Exactly. But it wasn't ever about glamorizing heroin. I feel like movies about heroin addicts from the 90s did a lot more to glamorize heroin than fashion photographs ever did. Also, people just didn't get it because it was challenging norms of beauty. Like, I actually think that Kareem Day's images are, like, quite empowering in a lot of ways because they're real and unvarnished. Well, yes, it it was a rejection of the 80s Vogue model, supermodel aesthetic. Yeah, and citing the Kardashians as heroin chic is the most psychotic thing because another part of heroin chic, it wasn't overtly anti-capitalist, but it was a rejection of traditional signifiers of luxury. And let's be honest, what the New York Post really wants to do, but they don't want to get sued by Kris Jenner, is they want to talk about how Kim and Chloe are probably using a certain diabetes <laughs> drug to rapidly lose weight. Yeah, I can't believe we haven't talked about Ozempic. We before. did. I mean, I referenced it in passing on a Kardashian segment, but that was when I just like saw it being whispered about on Dumois. Now I think there are multiple articles where people are like, this is probably what they're doing. And now there's a run on Ozempic because people are getting that drug to lose weight. Right. And Ozempic is a existing drug that treats diabetes. It's an injection that you get every month. It costs about $1,000 if your insurance doesn't cover it. And literally every person in LA is on it besides us. That's true. We're not on Ozempic. We're waiting for our Adderall prescriptions to be refilled. <laughs> I'm kidding. We're not on Adderall either. But those are the two things that are happening in tandem is there's a run on Ozempic and there's a shortage of Adderall going on right now, which it, people do use as an appetite suppressant. Right. Apparently, Ozempic, like how it works basically is it makes you feel full and you just don't want to eat. Like some people have more side effects and they actually get like nauseous around eating. It's kind of like the food version of, like I was on Wellbutrin for many years and that's a drug that obviously was developed to treat depression and anxiety, but the side effect was that it makes you not want to smoke cigarettes. Like cigarettes are disgusting. So Ozempic is kind of like the food version of that. It's very weird how Kim and Chloe are being framed as if they were plus-sized women to begin with. You know, it's not like Kim was a size whatever. Like, maybe at her heaviest, and I'm putting heaviest at quote, she was, what, a size four or size six? Yeah, like immediately after she had North or something. Yeah, we're not going to talk about the latest Kardashian episode, but she references with four days to go when she's about to try on the Ripley's dress, she says to her trainer she's 118 pounds. Yeah, there's no way she's not on Ozempic. Like, that's just a fact. The fucked up thing is, 
in Hollywood, like, if you saw a photograph of me, I don't think you'd be like, she's deathly ill thin. But the issue is, how thin must Chloe and Kim look in person if they look thin in photos? Oh, they're extremely thin in person. Another thing that happens is when Jeremy Scott is fitting Chloe in her corset, he goes, you're skinnier than the models. I believe it. One Ozempic side effect that we should talk about besides nausea and vomiting, which is the most common side effect, is gas. Like, these chicks are doing rancid farts. Like, if you see some girl in a bodycon dress and, like, a tiny bag that's just, like, ripping farts left and right, she's on Ozempic. (laughs) Or she has a terrible diet, but yeah. No, but it's, like, a medical fart. Oh, a medical fart. I've never smelled a medical fart. It's like a fart where it's, like, there's a medical issue. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's, like, not, like, normal. Yeah, uh, feeling some kind of way about this, Jamila Jamil wrote essentially a, a Medium article that Paper Magazine posted where she goes, I violently reject this. We must all violently reject this. It's like, you didn't read the article, girl, which talked about Ozempic, which talked about eating disorders and all of the potential negative effects that could come from like ultra skinny people being the beauty norm. Again, I think... It's always been. Yeah. Kaya Gerber has always been employed. Like, let's not forget that. Jamila Jamil goes on to say, we can't let this industry or its famous operatives manipulate us all back there again. I would dare say you are continuing to fan the flames of what I contend is an AI written New York Post article by writing an essay that is twice as long as this New York Post article. Yeah, she amplified that article and she didn't need to do that because no one would fucking read it otherwise. Also, I don't, I'm not convinced that she read it because if she did read it, she would know that it affirmed basically all of the points that she made in this article. I will say she, the funniest thing that she does write in her essay are the side effects that she says she's witnessed firsthand. She goes, I have watched people deal with horrific chronic diarrhea, vomiting, last of digestive troubles and issues with their spleens, thyroids, kidneys, and gallbladders. And also not to be a child, but farting is a big side effect. <laughs> Constant putrid farts. All this. I yeah, would, she knows. But here's the thing is like, this comes towards the end of the essay, but I feel like this is far more effective which is all these glamorous people uncontrollably farting into their couture and low-rise jeans. <laughs> but I think what she really, she ends the essay with this, which I think is what she really wanted to write, is this little fun wordplay. They don't get to tell us what to do or what to buy anymore. We're in control. They don't get to starve us anymore. We can starve them and see how they like it. It's like, okay, Normally, I appreciate when any celebrity aligns themselves with the body positivity movement or critiques diet culture. And I'm not saying that her critiques don't have merit, but I think she also realizes that every time she tweets or posts about the Kardashians, which she does basically every single day, she gets a ton of press. And I think that there's an attention-seeking and self-serving aspect to her activism that rubs me the wrong way. And before we move on to the next thing, I do just want to say it's not like we're denying or acting like there doesn't exist and there hasn't been a toxic dieting culture. I mean, we grew up in the 90s for God's sakes. 
Yeah, and I do think that the beauty ideals of the 90s negatively impacted society. I think that whenever there's not diversity, diverse body types shown in in advertising on the runway, I think it negatively impacts everyone. I definitely feel traumatized from all of the imagery that I ingested in the 90s. But again, it's not a heroin chic problem. American Vogue was promoting thinness, just like all of those photographers that we mentioned. I think people are going to appreciate your fashion history lesson with heroin chic. I hope so, because it's not really that sinister. It is a full creation of the media. And it's just a bunch of squares that couldn't understand how Kate Moss could be glamorous, not wearing makeup, lying on some dirty sofa. Like, that's on you. That's just having bad taste. But it was shocking at the time. Now I think I would actually like to see certain elements of heroin chic come back because it was more egalitarian in that sense. Like the interiors were not glamorous. You did not have to have hair. You did not have to have makeup, you know? And I wish that that look would start to infiltrate Instagram culture more. I guess that's what Be Real is. Like everyone looks like heroin chic on Be Real. Yeah, it democratized the fashion industry. Long live heroin chic. Yeah, not to sound like the Red Scare chicks, but (laughs) we mean that in the artistic value sense, not the... Right, we don't actually want to glamorize heroin use, which heroin chic never really did. So, fake news. Fuck you, Bill Clinton. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Shall we get into Rihanna's latest Savage Fenty show? Sure. I feel like we should have been able to think of a better transition from heroin chic to Savage Fenty, but well, I, it's fine. I was going to say from body exclusivity to body inclusivity, <laughs> Rihanna, Rihanna dropped her latest Savage Fenty. I would call it a fashion show, but this was like the least fashion of the Savage Fenty fashion shows. There's never fashion in the Savage Fenty fashion shows. It's literally just neon lace bodysuits. We know this. This is the fourth one we've watched. But this one felt more like she was putting dancers in costumes. I feel like in the other shows, I saw different looks. I think the Savage Fenty show is ultimately about dance. It's about choreography. It's not really about fashion. It's even less about music. It's it has its pros and its cons, but I feel like it is getting a bit redundant at this point. Even like the show itself is redundant. All the clothes look the same. All the locations look the same. The lighting looks the same. If it wasn't for those animated transitions, which were completely fabulous, it would have just looked exactly the same for 40 minutes. Any event that provides stunt casting is fun. Like for me, obviously... These shows began as kind of her takedown of the Victoria's Secret fashion shows. But for me, it's occupies the pop culture space that the MTV video and movie awards used to hold, where it's like, ooh, who am I going to see in the show? Right. What bit are they going to be doing? Like my... I think the highlight for me was Taylor Page and her whole let me reintroduce myself monologue. Right. Because at least someone was talking. This (laughs) needs an MC. Again, Savage Fenty from the beginning was positioned as the anti-Victoria's Secret. And Victoria's Secret made itself very, very vulnerable by not being size inclusive, by projecting a very basic kind of sexuality, which Savage has kind of moved beyond. 
but they did not need to subvert the format of the fashion show this much. It would be better if it was just a fashion show, or at the very least, this is what we need. Rihanna has to perform. Rihanna has to sing. It's been four years. It's weird now. It's weird. She's performing at the Super Bowl, but not this. This is her brand. Well, clearly she is having a multi-tiered reintroduction into her music career. So first it's... <laughs> no, no, no. But truly, I think that's why this was more dance and choreography based. I feel like that was laying the groundwork for the Super Bowl performance. It always is choreography based. There's nothing else happening except choreography apart from like the rare moments when it's like Cardelvine is walking or like Maxwell is performing. Like Maxwell's performing, but you're not performing. She is saving it for the Super Bowl. Why? At this point, I'm like, do you have anxiety about performing? Like, it seems weird to me, but also Maxwell, love seeing Maxwell. That reminded me of the fact that like a few years ago, I was in an Uber and I heard his cover of Kate Bush's This Woman's Work like on the radio and I hadn't heard it since the 90s. And I was so struck by its beauty that I burst into tears in the back of this car. Like, actually. Didn't you find Cara Delevingne didn't she look like do you remember the show Rugrats uh, Angelica Pickles had a doll named Cynthia with the hair that stuck out because that's what Cara Delevingne looked like to me by the way did not know it was her till I went on Twitter and someone was like look at Cara Delevingne in the show yeah it's not because she looks bad it's just I mean look what they did to Laura Stone nice seeing her but like you maybe didn't even notice she was there no because I texted you and I was like where are all the models well Precious Lee was there, but she was in glitter face. Okay. We got a we got a discussion about why are we doing a singular model in glitter face in shows now? Well, that's the influence of Pat McGrath. We need to ask her. She needs to tell us. I mean, it looks fabulous, but it's funny that it's just like now become a trope where there's one chick that just has to have rhinestones individually applied to their entire face. So Do we now get into the elephant in the Fenty showroom? Which is, (laughs) why do we think Rihanna put Johnny Depp in the show? I actually don't know because I was like, okay, there's two reasons. One, she likes, she knows him personally and she wants to stand by him. So I Googled Rihanna, Johnny Depp, no results. Not one Getty image photo of the two of them together. So I'm like, does she hate Amber Heard? I thought that was a joke, right? Because- It's a real weird time in Twitter. There's a lot of fake shit going around. And even when I saw the screenshot of him, I was like, oh, they that's a deep fake. Like, that's not real. I really didn't think he was going to be in pajamas leaning against a fucking tree, (laughs) walking like he's on absinthe to fucking outcast. So So fresh fresh and so so clean. To the lyric, specifically to the lyric, ain't nobody dope as me. It's like, okay. Even before the Amber Heard defamation trial, he was not cool. (laughs) He's always going to occupy a place in our hearts. 90s Johnny Depp, yes. Yes. And we got to respect that. But at the same time, things have gotten really fucking dark. And it's just so strange. It's such a strange cosign on Rihanna's part. So I have two theories. You have to look at it from a Johnny Depp stand point of view because Johnny Depp stands believe he is a domestic violence survivor. So they're saying that Rihanna is supporting a fellow domestic violence survivor by putting Johnny Depp in the show. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> 
to your point, what what might be the connection between Rihanna and Johnny Depp? I wonder if this is a favor to Bernard Arnault because he owns a part of Fenty hmm. and Depp, as you love to say, is the face of Dior Sauvage. Yeah, and I feel like the combination of Dior not dropping him and this is actually really, really powerful and yeah. really, really works to his favor and really legitimizes him in the aftermath of the trial. Right, and the common denominator of those two things is LVMH. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you're right. Fine. You want to put an older white male actor who's fallen out of favor in this role, which, how awkward was it when he finally got to the other tree and then he just sort of, like, <laughs> caressed it? With his back, though, it was, guys, it's so weird. You don't need to watch it, but it's bizarre. And by the way, it's in the middle of the show. I had assumed, like, they would put it, bury it at the end. No, it's smack dab in the middle. Well, one thing that I think was positive about it is that at least it made this show feel, like, set in the current moment and not just a rehash of the last three Savage Fenty shows, like it brings it into the present day. Not in a good way necessarily, but it feels like a comment on the times that we're living in. Okay, but given his career resurgence, wouldn't Nicolas Cage have been a much better choice? Or Brendan Fraser. Ooh. It's all about size inclusivity, right? He's about to win an Oscar. That would have been perfect. You fucked up, Rihanna. Okay, this is the other thing. It's like the tone of it. This needs to be lighter and more fun. Like they should be trying to recreate the energy of like a 90s Gautier show with right. the sexuality, with the sort of all over the place casting, the, a general sense of sort of fun and, and exuberance. This feels very serious. And I think it's a detriment. Well, I wonder if the serious tone, again, she is relaunching herself. She has her first song in five years, which is tied to the Black Panther soundtrack. And I wonder if the more serious tone of the, this Savage Fenty show is tied to her more serious song that's on the Black Panther soundtrack. Well, all the shows are exactly like this. It's not like it's new. Like the, they, these have never been fun. And uh, yeah, and the the new song I don't think is fun either. I listened to it a few times, then I was like, okay, I never need to listen to this again. To be fair, from what I understand of the new Black Panther film, it will acknowledge the death of Chadwick Boseman through his character T'Challa. So it's kind of hard to make a banger. Yeah, no, I get that. And Rihanna has great ballads, but this is not the greatest and I think that everyone just, we want something to play in our cars. You know, we just want something fun and escapist. That's why Beyonce's album was so great. And that's why we still play Chromatica as well. Yeah, I even like would be fine with like a third tier Rihanna song, like a bitch better have my money or something, you know, anything. God, yeah, that was fun. And that was just a whatever song. That literally was because someone didn't pay her. So yeah. she wrote a song that she could send to them. Before we move on, I do just want to ask one final question, which is the other point of this being on Amazon is whatever you see, you can buy. And I would like to ask, has this model ever worked? I feel like it's like, stop trying to make <laughs> fetch happen. It's like, stop trying to make the watch. See now, buy now happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the fucked up thing is... I can be doom scrolling on TikTok and like a girl's outfit and I will go to the comments to see if she IDs her outfit. If she doesn't, I will go and see if she has an Instagram. 
go to her Instagram, find the same outfit, see if she gives outfit credits, then go on to uh, open Jesus a new t- Christ and buy that item. Yet I will not buy see it now, buy it now on a website. Okay, Lauren, you know what you need? Google Lens. Have you heard of her? <laughs> Is that not literally the Google Glasses they no, tried to make No, it's not happen? Google Glasses. It's literally like their new version of reverse image search, except it will literally, if you screenshot a TikTok and put it into Google Lens, it will literally pull up the dress or and, whatever you're looking for. It's actually crazy. And guys, that isn't an ad read, but goddamn, could you imagine if we did have Google Lens as a... <laughs> As a client. As an advertiser, we could do seamless ad reads like that. I finally saw Barbarian. Yes. So we're not doing a Kardashian segment this episode. We're going to end the episode talking about Barbarian. So if you have not seen the film, which I say everyone should see Barbarian. Well, we don't need to really spoil it. We can kind of half spoil it. Like, right? If you don't want any spoilers, stop listening to the podcast now. If you enjoy our discourse about film, continue listening. Yeah. Um, Love. So we initially saw the trailer for this when we saw Nope, and it was a seemed like it was going to be a very by-the-numbers thriller, right? Girl comes to an Airbnb late at night. It's pouring rain out. And wouldn't you know it, there's already a guy staying there. And it's not just any guy. It's It's Pennywise. Yes, it's Bill Skarsgård, Hot Steve Buscemi, as I like to call him. And that is what the trailer is. And, you know, spooky things happen in the basement. Great, I'm in. I was going to see this movie anyway. A week before it comes out, I'm on Twitter and all the film Twitter people are like, go in as blind as possible. Just go. You won't be sorry. And so I saw it opening weekend and holy shit. Literally for two months, every person I see, I'm like, just go see Barbarian. Just, I'm not going to tell you anything about it. Just go. It's great. We're getting so many great horror movies these days, which really touches me. But this one, it feels very like it is really contemporary because one, it's an Airbnb horror story. And two, it's it has a meta commentary on the Me Too movement that's very interesting. So the brilliance of the film in many ways has nothing to do with the plot of the film. The fact that 20th century studios that put out the film were brave enough to not tell you everything that happens in the film and to make the trailer basically just the first 25 minutes of the film is astonishing and something that never happens anymore. Also, the use of casting Bill Skarsgård, who you associate with Pennywise, so you think he's going to be a bad guy, and also just the natural tension of a man and a woman in that situation. Yeah. And then the usage of Justin Long. Genius casting. I didn't realize that Justin Long is kind of a scream queen because he was in Jeepers Creepers, which I've never seen. He was in yeah, Tusk. Uh, he was in something else and he was, he's was he been in this. Oh, he was in Drag Me to Hell, I think. And now this. He's a regular, regular old Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> and this is his masterpiece. This film is also a great reminder that you just need to trust your instincts, right? Like there's a very like famous... Oprah episode about this because a lot of people that are the victims of violent crimes get a bad vibe and then they don't even though their body is telling them to get out of the situation they don't because they don't want to be rude and we need to remember that and also don't go to the second location (laughs) 
Never, never allow yourself to be taken to a second secondary location. Yes, if you've watched any forensic files or any CSI or Law and Order, you'll know that. Well, that's also Oprah. I guess maybe for the the younger people that maybe missed that episode, Oprah also did a very famous episode about abductions that basically said if you are being abducted, you cannot go to the second location. If you have to die in the first location, that's where you have to die because your chances of survival diminish so significantly once you go to the second location so anyway it saves lives they did a follow-up episode of oprah which was all the people that took her advice and survived so passing that along and what you're referring to is the main character tess played by georgina campbell who decides to stay at this Airbnb, which, look, every film has a buy-in. It should be said that this film is written and directed by a man. And I feel like as a woman, and maybe this is comes from a place of privilege, but it's like, I'm, I'm driving to a hotel and just putting it on a credit card <laughs> and figuring it out. Yeah, like once you walk into a basement and you see a dirty cast iron bed oh. with a tripod and a video camera, you run. Unless you're in a Stephen Klein photo shoot, in which stay, but. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's, a, that's another good question, which is, I wouldn't be that curious to then pull the, the twine and open a creepy door and walk down the stairs. I know, the fact that everyone did that, you guys are actually crazy. Well, but the Justin Long thing, which is a little too crazy, but it is a, a, uh, a funny uh, skewering of millennials obsessed with homes, which is when Justin Long's character discovers that room, he begins measuring it because this is his home because he grew up in Michigan and this was just an investment property. And so he's trying to sell this place because he's been me too'd out of existence. After Bill Skarsgård's Keith is dragged away into black, it immediately cuts to Justin Long singing in a convertible by the ocean. And you're like, what the fuck is this movie? Yeah. And then it, his jovial mood quickly shifts because he's, as we previously said, me too'd out of existence and he has to go to his investment property and explores the secret room into his, its deepest bowels because he thinks <laughs> he can add square footage to his home. Okay. After seeing that, now I understand what you said on a previous episode of this podcast <laughs> about the the sudden ubiquity of these jump scares oh. of elderly women with oh. their tits out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was talking about that. Fuck, what movie were we talking about? Oh, Tar. I was like, it's too much. <laughs> it happened. By the way. It's Tar. It's this. It's X. What else? Oh, well, you haven't seen Smile yet, but it also happens in <laughs> Smile where I'm like, and which makes even less sense in the film. And I'm like, oh, I was just imagining the filmmaker of Smile was sitting watching Barbarian a month before his film comes out, just being like, fuck. Well, we also have dicks, as we saw in Men, which, well, did you, have you seen Men? No, I have to see Men. You still have to see Men. Men's great. See Men. Well, I'm also looking at the cast credits, and evidently the mother is played by a man. Wait, what? It says Matthew Patrick Davis played the mother. So those those were prosthetic jugs. Oh, of course they were prosthetic jugs, Chelsea. I don't know. I didn't really think about it. This is your version of uh, people not wanting Brendan Fraser to play that character in The Whale. You're like, only real saggy tits in film. No prosthetic, fake, saggy boobies. Yeah, that'll be part of my political platform. 
Yeah. When I run for office in Los Angeles. I thought that it was an interesting dissection of gender roles in horror films because I got the sense that the test character was able to survive because as a woman, you have this fight or flight thing where you need to make a situation okay. And that's why she plays into the mother's <laughs> games, which is mostly just like sucking on a gross nipple bottle. bottle. She was bottle fed. And that's why Justin Long as a man is like, fuck this. I don't want to do this. So I'm not going to do this. Yeah. I will say the thing that makes the least sense in this film is Tess gets out. That's not the part that doesn't make sense. She is our final girl. But the fact that one is a black woman, she flags down cops, two white cops, or I think it's one white cop, one black cop, and then is trying to describe what happens in the house and actively goes back for Justin Long. It's like, fuck that guy. No. Yeah, fuck Justin Long. I mean, maybe that speaks to my... She's a better person. Yeah, than than we are. (laughs) But we listen to Oprah because... We would have not gone back to Justin Long, which means we wouldn't have we would have not gotten shot. Yes, but also if it was us, we would have already read the Hollywood Reporter and the Dateline articles about oh, the Justin fact that Long. Justin Long like probably raped someone. So we'd be like, "Fuck this guy." Yeah, <laughs> he's good down here. Are you the guy that had that streaming show that got canceled because you raped someone? <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Have fun with your new mom. Enjoy watching this old VHS. (laughs) That was another very Stephen Klein type set. It's like you almost imagine Madonna doing some yoga pose in leather in that room or something. But only if also a horse was in that room as well. It was very Stephen Klein, but no horse, no Doberman, no leather. How are your feelings about horror films that have either a straight up supernatural explanation or a quasi supernatural explanation? Because the quote unquote monster, which I guess the idea is like who really is a monster, is this child that was born of incest from a serial killer who originally lived in the house as we come to learn. I think it depends with the supernatural stuff because I think that's really effective like in the case of Hereditary, for example. Great. Love it. But also I feel like it can be a crutch for lazy screenwriters. And by the way, for those who have seen Barbarian, I'm defining the supernatural element of this as like how strong and tall the mother is. Right. Presumably from incest, question mark? That makes no sense. Yeah, that is the part because the setup of the film is so fucking good and it's so funny unexpectedly funny that once you learn ultimately like what the the quote-unquote big bad is you're just sort of like oh okay right it doesn't have that hereditary gut punch but it's great see barbarian where can you stream it our favorite hbo max fuck when will hbo max just sponsor this podcast i know someone knows someone who works for hbo max or well we had a contact but we don't know if they've been fired or not we have to reach i was gonna say someone in this podcast knows the seven employees who still work for hbo max yeah it's just the best way to spend 9.99 how much is it even i don't know i pay all of the money yeah I like this. We're experimenting with the format of potentially just doing like a few very curated topics. Yeah, I think we pack too much stuff in sometimes. Sometimes there's just a lot to talk about. And then other weeks there's nothing to talk about. But maybe we should like filter out the garbage more. 
Right. Some of you might be wondering why we're not talking about Selena Gomez's documentary. And the answer is we don't care. No one's wondering that. (laughs) Some people might. I get that that made a big splash in the world of her fans. What are they called? Do we know? Selena Nanders? I don't know. Are they really called that? No, I don't know. Let's figure it out. We've talked about this before that prior to the album Fetish, Chell and I used to have a joke that if you put a gun to our heads, we'd be dead because we couldn't name a Selena Gomez song. And we would do this every six months and we would learn <laughs> a Selena Gomez song. And then I would like unexpectedly be like, name a Selena Gomez song. And we'd be like, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> well, now I know because I can't keep my hands to myself. That's Selena, right? Sure. <laughs> okay, wait. Fan Selena Gomez fan name. Oh, Selanators? So I wasn't that off. What did you say? Selena Nators? Selena. How do you pronounce this? Oh, God. Not our strong suit. Selena Nators. That's the worst thing ever. So senators that are Selena Gomez fans? (laughs) Do you think there's one U.S. senator that is a Selena Gomez fan? Yeah. Who? Lindsey Graham. (laughs) (laughs) I, I do declare I love me some Selena Gomez. I, th- I don't like how Justin Bieber treated her. I am the senator for South Carolina and a Selena Nader. <laughs> and I want to represent you. He's like winning in a landslide. Those fans are crazy. Do we still not know who Armer is? Oh, if Karen Bass won yet? Also... I got caught in like a flash flood. I told you about this. Yes. Driving home yesterday and I was driving up Beverly Glen and literally I saw a Rick Caruso sign floating down (laughs) in a river of mud down the hill into the valley. That's quite a metaphor. Okay, this is an update from two hours ago. The Los Angeles mayor's race has grown tighter with businessman Rick Caruso now ahead of, oh no, I don't like this. What? Of U.S. Representative Karen Bass by just 2,695 points. Okay, so that... What do you mean points? Oh, sorry. (laughs) What is this, like points, pikas? Like, what the fuck are we talking about? Sorry, I meant 2,695 votes. I'm looking at, so Rick Cruz is at 50.2%. Karen Bass is at 49.8%. This this is going to go to a runoff, isn't it? Or can you have a runoff to a runoff? Because this is a runoff from fucking June. That's wild. I thought that Rick was going to win in a landslide, actually, just because I think that there are a lot of people that support him that wouldn't necessarily say that publicly. Oh, for sure. And there's a lot of people who said they voted for Rick Caruso publicly that I wish they had it. Although I saw (laughs) a TikTok that found how the Kardashians voted and they just like Kim hasn't voted in the last four elections, but then I didn't triple check if that was true or not. Wait, what? I'm just saying. She didn't vote for Caitlyn? <laughs> That's rude. Anyway, there's still more more than a million ballots to count, so there's time. All right, well, we'll know by the time we record next week's episode. Or not. All right, let's call it. <laughs> we can't call it for mayor, but let's call it with the podcast. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week. Long live heroin chic. Oh, boy. Bye. Bye. Bye.